Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. I am so honored and delighted to have a fantastic panel of my heroes today on Unchained TV. We are talking about how to end racism, homophobia, sexism, and bigotry in all its forms in the animal rights movement. And there's an exciting new book that has just come out that's a collection of essays. Uh, Nadja, I know you've got it right in your hand. Can you put it up there so everybody can see it? Anti-Racism and Animal Advocacy. Uh, PJ Nyman, who was also with Mercy for Animals, contributed an essay. And Jasmine Singer, was the editor of this incredible book. So I will start with you, Jasmine. What is the overall message of this book and why is it so crucial? Thank you so much, Jane, and thank you for covering this topic. It's wonderful to be here. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation is a book that explores how white activists who have worked in the farmed animal protection movement can confront the ways that we have benefited from white supremacy culture as it relates to animal activism and how the animal rights movement has been part of that propelling of normalizing white supremacy culture. Uh, We also have people of the global majority who have contributed and through the incredible work of Encompass, and I know that PJ is a board member for Encompass, we have been able to kind of change the way that we're going to go about our activism moving forward. And it's all the teachings of Encompass and of its executive director, Ariana Birdie, who has been on the front lines of working in racial justice. So the book really focuses on people like myself and PJ who are working to end this horrifically not compassionate at all way that we've been going about our animal activism. This is a hot topic. We've already got our first caller, Dre from Minneapolis. Dre, your question or thought. I just wanted to say thank you for having this conversation. I don't have anything specific to ask or say right now, but I'm going to stay on the line and I'm sure I will have a couple burning questions along the way. Excellent. Thank you. Well, burn away. Um, it is an important conversation. And um, in discussing this, and it's always appropriate to have a member of the animal kingdom, we're all a member of the animal kingdom, <laughs> but a specific member like a feline, a fabulous feline is part of this conversation, is that I think the underlying false assumption is that somehow that it's a distraction to worry about these issues while we work on animal rights. Whereas what I think is so brilliant about this book and the entire work of Encompass is they're saying that it's supersizing the animal rights movement, that it is actually providing extra fuel to the animal rights movement and that it's narrow thinking to regard a dealing with issues like racism, and homophobia and sexism as side issues, that that's really the wrong way to look at it. And um, I want to ask you about that, Naja Wright-Brown, the head of the Black Veg Society. What is your thought on that? 
Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, you know, dealing with the community directly, we feel, a lot of us feel that, um, you know, animals are treated better than us. I mean, we're all mammals and animals, but, you know, just through history alone, um, we've been associated as being an animal, animalistic. And um, that's, uh, you know, racist and prejudice within itself. So 100% agree supersizing the animal rights movement. And that's why some people in the community kind of steer, veer away from even become vegan. vegan. And it's really a hard fight over here. Um, PJ Nyman, what was your essay about? What's your thought on this issue? Well, my essay was sort of outlining my entry into the vegan and animal rights movement as a white person who came from an academic background where I really thought of myself as somebody who was extremely progressive, who sort of got all the issues. I was, you know, among many white vegans thought that because I care about animals, my compassion extends all the way there. I must implicitly be um, okay on all the other issues. And I realized over time that Um, That was not the case and that in many ways the vegan movement and the animal rights movement and organizations are a reflection of the society we live in. And that is a racist society and one where uh, white supremacy culture is deeply embedded. And so my essay is just discussing my experience of that and starting to recognize the way that my own white privilege played into my success in entering this movement. And then also recognizing that I have a contribution to make here in helping to dismantle, you know, those systems of oppression that are holding our movement back. Yeah. So what I see you saying or hear you saying is that you evolved by having the courage to take a look at yourself and hold yourself accountable and not make this assumption. Your assumption that you're a progressive, vegan, animal rights activist, well-educated, therefore there's no problem, there's no issue. I can't, I can't be part of this problem. You're saying you took a good hard look at yourself and you said, wow, yeah, maybe I am a part of the problem. So. Can you dive deeper into that? Can you tell me like what um, what happened to make you realize or what behavioral changes or policy changes occurred after that? Sure. Yeah. For me, it was uh, leafleting. It was a leafleting experience. So I like I think a lot of college age white vegans entered the movement leafleting because at the time this was like. 2012, it was touted as the most effective way to help animals was like hand out as many leaflets as you can. And so I was in that community and it was during a leafleting session at the University of Toronto, which is, a you know, in the center of a very diverse city. And I found myself with other white vegans handing these vegan leaflets to primarily students of color. And I felt my own I don't know, this like the history of white colonialism, like just became extremely like present for me. And I didn't want to be that person who was just saying help animals when I wasn't actively anti-racist. I wasn't taking steps at the time to address these issues in the communities that I was in, which were primarily white activist communities. And so that was the moment for me. It was leafleting, really, where I had that sort of awareness that I'm not doing enough here. And this isn't there's something about the this the dynamic of being a white vegan handing out these leaflets that's that's off and I need to do something about it. So that was the beginning for me. Well, one of the interesting things is that Encompass does racial equity trainings. So uh, looking at the website, 
it says essentially if everybody in the animal rights movement took these racial equity trainings that we would be more effective as a movement can anybody here describe what these trainings are like jasmine have you have you participated in them yeah i've participated in them a couple of times and actually the book came from that training because i was a participant in the training and we were all it was one of the first events to move virtual at the very, very beginning of COVID. And so we were all in our little Zoom boxes and I'm hearing activists like PJ talking about how they have been part of the problem. And I'm of course reflecting about how I've been part of the problem. And as someone who is very passionate about the written word and very passionate about using personal narrative as a way to create social change, I made the suggestion to put together this book. And that is two years later, what we're holding in our hands, which is a really powerful example of how collaboration can really change things. And I think as PJ just described so eloquently, the training became kind of a important step for all of us who were confronting the way our activism has been in a way complacent. The trainings really break down the meanings of various types of uh, various types of ways that we have contributed to this sort of unfair, unjust society as far as racism is concerned. People like PJ and I come from a background in LGBTQ activism. And so it was an interesting it was an interesting moment for us, I think, not to speak for you, PJ, but the trainings really helped us to figure out a new way forward and how we can move forward in a much more just, equitable way within animal protection, because there is no way of pursuing animal protection without also confronting the very many other injustices we might be a part of. Well, give me an example. Okay, we're in the training. What happens? I mean, is it confrontational? Is it accusatory? Is it workshop? I'm just trying to visualize what the training, which was the basis of the book, is like. PJ, do you want to take that? Sure. Yeah, I can speak to that. Um, there, and I can also plug that there is a three-part training being hosted this year. Uh, the first one is on April 6th. Um, and so this year it's divided into three sections. Um, also apologies if there's noise in the background. I have a bunny here who's deciding to be mischievous at this exact moment. Uh, so I, the first uh, training is focused on awakening. So this is about, you know, raising consciousness around the problems around racial equity in our movement. I think, you know, get, helping to develop more self-awareness about our own positions racially and also within the movement or organizations that we're, we belong to. And so the first one's focusing on awakening. And then the second is accountability. So how to have conversations in the workplace, identify your position of power within an organization or within the communities you belong to. And then the final training is on leading. So really how to operationalize the, the concepts and awareness that's developed in the first few sections. And I would say the environment of the trainings is very open, very supportive, um, really good opportunity to have candid conversations for people to own their discomfort um, and, and create also a community of people who can work together to create change, which I think is helpful because a lot of times, myself included, there's a hesitance to get involved because of uncertainty or this feeling of isolation. And so the trainings really help to bring people together, which I know Jasmine also spoke to in terms of how the book evolved. So uh, let me ask a provocative question, because I think one of the issues that to me as a human being has always irked me are trying to put people in four boxes. And guess what? We're in four boxes right now. <laughs> 
Um, I'm Puerto Rican and Irish. My dad was Irish American. My mother was Puerto Rican. And she was also Spanish, German, and likely indigenous. There's question marks about um, what her entire background was. Uh, like to say she lived to 99 and a half and was the original animal rights activist. She had a, a pig who was her friend in Vieques, Puerto Rico, when she was a child and they slaughtered the pig. She fainted and she was pretty much vegan vegetarian pescatarian from that point on. So I credit her with activating my animal activism. But, you know, um, I feel like sometimes I'm sort of left out of the equation. Where do people like myself fit in? Um, and we're becoming such a multicultural, multi-diverse uh, culture. When people ask me my background, I say, I'm an earthling. Quoting uh, the, my favorite movie, can you weigh in on this, Naja? That you know, it, it's by by bringing things to the surface um, and tackling racial oppression, um, we're accomplishing a tremendous goal. But we have to also make sure that we acknowledge everybody's authentic identities, and they can be very complex. Yes, I'm glad that you uh, said that, Jane, because myself, uh, I'm. Black and I'm also uh, Puerto Rican, uh, unacculturated. Oh, really? I don't speak the language, but that is my culture. And, 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 and sometimes uh, I run into issues where I can be around people that think I'm, you know, all black and that's the only culture. And there may be uh, some things said about Latin culture that, that makes me cringe. So it's very, very important for us, you know, oppression, racism, prejudice, all of that uh, needs to be addressed 100%. And in starting to read this book, Arianish makes a, a great point in, in uh, the foreword about the problem, again, white folks created it. And a lot of times I feel people are just following this behavior. We are in a culture of separation. Everything is division. Just think about everything that's going on right now. It's always this creation of division. US is better than UK. You, we have to learn how to try love and be able to coexist and work together on issues, whatever these issues are, animal rights, social justice, food justice, racism, all of that. We need to build a culture of trying love and understanding we are in a melting pot. We are the global majority. How do we get white folks racist to accept that and be able to work together on solving these problems. That's a big fight. We've got a caller, Sarah from Atlanta. Your question or thoughts, Sarah? Hi, my question is for the panel. I would like to know if you would be willing to come on to some of these animal rights. Sometimes they're in person and sometimes they're on Zoom, possibly presenting this book and you come on as a panel to talk to people that may think that there's not racism within the vegan community, but they just don't realize it. And I just think that a lot of times we don't see that, we only see the vegan part. We don't see like that we're leaving people out, I think. But that's my question and thank you so much. Jane, can I say yeah. something about that being an organizer of events that cater to our demographic? Um, 
Yeah, I think everyone needs to get this book, you know, to get started. Get the book, read the, the book, the full book. Uh, and yeah, I'll be happy to attend and tell you the reason why I felt uncomfortable coming into the vegan community, thinking this was a compassionate community and finding out Mr. Racism. It's no different. I was very, very dis disappointed because compassion is action. And if you're not acting compassionately to all beings, then I don't want to be called vegan, to be honest with you. And that, that was my attitude about it. Well, where is the racism in the vegan community? Um, I, how do we define that and where do we see it and how do we catch it and flag it and make it go away? PJ. I mean, I can answer by in terms of where to see it. Like if you look at any public post by an animal focused organization that addresses race, the comments, it, the, the, <laughs> the white vegans come out and show like not everybody, but that's where I see a lot of just overt racism, if you want like evidence in that sense. But I also think in terms of, you know, look at the demographics of organizations, look at who is the best funded. Um, those are some some other examples. And I know one of the essays in this uh, in the book by Michelle Rojos Soto shows that in her experience coming into the movement as initially, because she was new to the movement, she could see very quickly racism. It was like in the campaign messaging and the kind of images used in the kinds of diet change promoted in the demographics of leadership at major organizations. So these things are observable, like I think all over the place in the makeup of organizations and the way people have discourse online. Um, and I can also mention for those who are needing like more evidence, I mean, there's people of color saying so, which is sufficient, but also <laughs> there's um, voices of the movement. Uh, there's a voices of the movement report that Encompass recently published, which was exactly interviewing people who work in this movement and asking for their experiences and particular black, particularly black indigenous and people of the global majority. And the findings were that people were saying the movement culture is favoring white perspectives. It's favoring a certain way of doing advocacy that has historically been white led. It's favoring then funding those kinds of um, actions because those have been deemed the most effective by historically white leaders. And so the, I'm just plugging a number of examples that I see where racism is evident throughout the movement. And yet, according to uh, Tracy McWhorter, uh, who is a leader in this movement and who is responsible for changing, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of African-American women to go vegan. She says, and there's statistics to back this up, African-Americans are the fastest growing demographic in the vegan movement and vegan women in particular are going vegan at a faster rate than the general public. Can you address that as the editor of this book, Jasmine Singer? I think that you're making the exact point of why the animal protection movement is by and large a product of white supremacy culture, because what Tracy says is absolutely true. The fastest growing aspect of veganism is within uh, black women in particular. And I think the fact that when, you know, as PJ said in Michelle's essay, you look around at, at the campaign material, you look around at founders, you look around at the senior staff, you look at the philanthropists, you look at the marketing materials and you see white people. That right there is all the evidence that we need. I mean, as PJ said, other than the fact that like 
people of the global majority are literally saying, of course, of course, animal rights is a microcosm of the rest of the world. And we still live in a very, very, very racist society. So I want to just address your caller. And I think that it's really wonderful that uh, she wanted for us <laughs> to appear on panels at these animal protection conferences and things like that. And I, I'm sure you would have a, a lot of really great people of the global majority who would be able to speak to this. But not only that, they'd be able to just speak to what their expertise is. And that to me is where we need to be going, not just inviting on people of the global majority to be speaking on behalf of like why we live in a racist world <laughs> and why we have a racist animal protection movement and vegan movement. But why don't they come and speak about leader leadership and philanthropy. And that's the shift that needs to be made. And that's one of the shifts we talk about in the book, anti-racism and animal advocacy. And yet, if you look at some of the leading voices for veganism today, I would have to immediately off the top of my head, think of Tabitha Brown. I'm yes. listening to her book right now on Audible. It's fantastic. She's dynamic. She's a star and she's an African-American. So are things changing? Are we making progress? Can, can we um, also incorporate that into the conversation? And Naja, maybe take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm so proud of Tabitha Brown, uh, who's uh, had Land of Kush food a number of times and has promoted us. That people, when when the community sees people coming up like that, they what happens is a movement. Like, this is for me. Now, it, it is for me because I'm seeing myself in the flesh through a Tabitha Brown, through Pinky Cole with Slutty Vegan, you know, through these people that are making moves and, and waves in, in the movement. So absolutely, it's very encouraging. It's inspiring. Um, Tracy's African-American Vegan Starter Guide. We need to see us in the movements to, to really accept it and appreciate it. So yes, it's happening and we need more. And let's talk about films that have been made addressing this issue, The Invisible Vegan, Vegan yes, and Leva, which, by the way, give our uh, streaming network a plug. Unchained TV is a new streaming network with vegan content. You can download it right on your phone. It is uh, right there on your phone that anybody can download. 500 plus movies, including The Invisible Vegan, which talks about veganism in the African-American community. And um, we also have, obviously, the big new film, They're Trying to Kill Us, okay? Badass Vegan, um, basically interviewing a lot of hip-hop stars and talking about food deserts, talking about food justice. Those are huge issues as well. It, it's not... I mean, this is a very big, big sub subject. And so you could talk about veganism and maybe unconscious bias as well in the vegan community. People who are not necessarily mean spirited, but are just need some education, need some need one of those trainings. But but also institutionalized racism. And that is perpetrated not by vegans, but by major corporations and the U.S. government. Jasmine. This is something that I think anybody who's watching or listening to this right now who is vegan can identify with. 
whether or not they have started to confront their anti-racism yet. And maybe this is the turning point for a lot of white people who are watching this. But if you have gone vegan, there was a moment, unless you were raised vegan, there was a moment when you started to confront your behavior and the system that it was continuing to elevate, the system of injustice, the system of cruelty, the system that is putting behind closed doors what we're doing to animals. And we all had to confront our own behavior in that. Jane, I loved your book, I Want which really confronts a lot of the way you looked at your previous behavior, including around consumerism. We are an evolving kind. We are a group of people who are trying to do better. I can't imagine that anybody watching this would disagree with that. And so as part of that moral code, as part of that uh, moral imperative, I think we have to confront the ways we and our unjust privileges have allowed for us to move forward as part of a system of inequity. And what can we do about that? So what can we do about it? I think, first of all, having the courage to look at it um, is super important. And having conversations like this is super important uh, because I do want to bring in the idea that not everybody is born with perfect knowledge and that people who may do certain things may not be encouraged. And I've got a disco going on here. Um, people who... Um, who are exhibiting, let's say, unconscious racism may not be aware of it. And then presumably, if they're good hearted people, when they're made aware of it, they change their behavior. I mean, uh, I've had a lot of soul searching about our nonprofit and how to increase diversity uh, as the Black Lives Matter movement was rising up. It was an opportunity for introspection and to have conversations and say, are we doing this right? Can we be more inclusive? Who can we get involved? How can we get that involved? And um, thanks, thanks to Naja Wright-Brown and um, other contributors, I feel like we've made incredible strides. Uh, and I think it was it was a process of education for every nonprofit leader. We've been all going through a process of education. So what's next? What's next? Where do we need to go next? Can I people? add something to that, yes. Jane? Sure. Um, you said a couple of things. Uh, I don't I don't think I heard just having us have a seat at the table. A lot of times it's just people, you know, donating funds or giving resources. Sometimes we just want to sit at a table so that we can have this conversation. Um, I, I can make my own table and have seats, but it's also uh, a good feeling, uh, appreciative and a feeling of inclusion to sit at the table with folks, all white, global majority, whoever, and have this conversation and set some objectives on what are we going to do about it and take action on it. Absolutely. A seat at the table is important. And when you're dealing with, like, for example, um, boards, okay, having a diverse board is super important. Uh, making sure that people are promoted in an equitable fashion. I mean, this is across the board. I was just reading an article about the media yesterday, and a, a producer was talking about how she saw that the person she was training was making so much more money than she was. She'd been there I don't know how many decades and she's a woman and he's a guy and he's already making more money on an entry level position. So where does sexism, where, <laughs> where, do, where does women's rights or uh, where does homophobia fit into this whole issue of bigotry? I mean, 
intersectionality is a crucial issue. None of this is happening in a vacuum. Uh, you mentioned my book, Jasmine, my book, I want my journey from addiction and overconsumption to a simpler, honest life. I should have said more honest because I don't know if we all <laughs> of us achieved complete honesty, but um, there was a, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff uh, in terms of me getting clear on who I am. <clears throat> I uh, was born Jane Mitchell and I added my mother's name Anita Velez Mitchell was one of the first hyphenates when she married my dad, Pierce Mitchell, not to give you TMI, but in the 50s, she did not just give up her name. She was Anita Velez Mitchell. And as I was growing up, people were always asking me, what's your background? And they were always asking me these questions, like trying to figure me out. Well, when my father passed away, I decided to do something about it. I was talking to my therapist about it. And she said, well, your mother's a hyphenate. Why don't you do it? So I marched into my boss and I said, this is what I want to do. And I did it. And guess what? Last night, I was looking at the Andy Warhol diaries on Netflix. And I pop up at the Diana Ross concert as a reporter as Jane Mitchell. That was before I changed my name. Um, so it's really interesting. I think we've all gone through a personal evolution. That was important for me to express all sides of my heritage. Uh, and I never looked back. I was so thrilled. And some people attacked me and said I was doing it for um, self-promotion reasons. And I said, you know what? I know I'm doing it for the right reasons. You live your life. I'm going to live mine. So I think that's why I say that this issue is very, very nuanced. And uh, one thing that sets me sort of gets my hackles up is when everybody says, you know, you got to check a box and you've got to be in one of four boxes the entire planet. It makes me angry. Yeah, okay, yes. and I know a lot of other people get angry about this. I mean, we live in a multi-diverse culture. If if there's four boxes, I've had people who are Middle Eastern go, where do I fit myself in? Right. I, I don't even, there's not even a box that applies to me. So how do we take the best of this anti-racism, take all the good stuff without possibly creating other problems? It's a provocative question, and I'll throw it to whoever wants to answer it. I, I can do me. <laughs> I'm okay, like, you know, it just gets complicated. You know, I just do me. You like me for me. This is who I am. This is who I'm bringing to. I'm I'm that type of in individual. The synergy is going to work or it doesn't. Everyone is in their different tribes. Um, I try to embrace everyone. But if, if you're going to give this energy, you don't like me for whatever reason, then you can go over there and uh, let me find my tribe and let's work on. We got a lot of work to do. I don't have any time to be arguing to, with people that don't like me because I'm brown skin or tan or beige or whatever, you know, color it is today or whatever title you're giving me today, African-American, whatever. And that's just how I feel. I'm doing me. I love it. I'm doing me. That's a T-shirt if I ever saw <laughs> one. Um, Jasmine, what are your thoughts? And, and how does your nuanced background fit into all this? Every single person, just like we argue every animal is a unique individual. Every animal has a completely unique story. Just like each of us human animals has a completely unique story. And so how do you achieve racial justice and bigotry and homophobia and sexism and at the same time give that leeway and that space for people to have their own individual nuanced experiences? Well, I think that it isn't so much a question of how do you 
leave space, but how do you look at your own role? And like my role is very different than yours and PJ's role is very different than yours and Naja's role is very different than yours. And so like I, I as someone who came to the animal protection movement as a queer person, as a lesbian, as someone who worked in AIDS activism, I came in working very, very firmly entrenched in the LGBTQ movement. And then as a feminist could not make sense of what I was doing by consuming eggs and dairy at that point, since they are ultimately the exploitation of the reproductive parts and systems. And so that's when I went vegan. And my LGBTQ activism has always been core to my animal activism. But I don't think that me as a lesbian, is is going to sort of try and take up the same amount of space when I'm working in anti-racism because I'm still a white lesbian. Do you know what I mean? I think that like what's happening to uh, brown and black people behind closed doors right now is absolutely horrific. And as we know, there's a difference between uh, anti-racism and non-racism. And so for me, it's a matter of speaking up and doing something as opposed to just saying, oh, well, I, I would never partake in something like that. I think we're actively partaking in the brutality to marginalized communities unless we're actively doing something. So I agree with Naja, but I think Naja is coming from a very different perspective than me. Since I'm a white person, I have much more to do in this arena. Uh, fascinating. And here's the interesting aspect when you look at racism and animal rights um we have in fact worked with an organization called boycott meat that went vegan in support of the almost overwhelmingly uh bipoc uh slaughterhouse workers who were dying of COVID. and so when you are in your first thought of wow the issue of racism and animal rights, there are so many other uh, facets that come to mind as opposed to let's clean our own house. But you can't give away what you don't have. We must clean our own house, but we also must look at institutionalized racism in the world of animal exploitation. That more in a second, we've got Miriam from Colorado. Your question or thought, Miriam. Hello, this is Miriam Shiro from Denver, Colorado, and this question is for Nigel. Um, hi, Nigel. Hi, um, me. Um, hi, I'm at Pro Weekend like you too, and um, so I like you have experience uh, in movement because I have, I have experienced it very, very badly. It's very, very hurtful, disgusting, it's sickening, it's awful, and I just. All through my my activism, because I got into activism um, from the first time that I I uh, learned about the animal suffering, I became vegan, and from that point on, I've I went into activism and never stopped. But all through my activism, even though there was racism, I never gave up. I still stuck with it. And I just wonder if you have experienced the same thing, and um, if you could give an example of of a, um, a racial um, experience that you had. Um, of racism in the movement. Yeah, you know, I'll give you two experiences, okay? Um, my mother never taught me mm-hmm, about yeah. color and racism and all this other stuff. I learned by myself at nine. Right. Recently 
innocently swimming in a lake in Massachusetts and a white young boy called me a nigger. I didn't know what that was, but I went home and found out from my mother and then it just, you know, my whole world was different, but I didn't let me, I didn't let that stop me from doing what I had to do. So that's outside of the vegan community. Inside of the, the vegan community, things like, let's say we have a vegan soul fest and it's called uh, not a real veg fest. That type of stuff pisses me off. Um, you know, don't downplay our culture and what we're doing and the type of events that we're having. And I'm not offended by that because I love myself. I know what I'm doing and I know what I'm doing for my people. And if you don't like it, just keep it moving because I'm going to keep it moving too. And that's just how I look at it. I really don't care what you think about me. I'm going to keep doing me and doing what I need to do in the community. I didn't become an award-winning vegan soul food bistro worrying about what other people were thinking about me. Wow, well said. Roger <laughs> for president. Um, Paige from Los Angeles, your question or thought? Yes, I want to um, circle to what um, you were saying, Jasmine, about the distinction between, and thank you for having this conversation. This is very powerful. Um, please share this out, everyone who's, who's watching and listening. Um, you said being an anti-racist uh, or non-racist. Can you please distinguish the difference between those two? Thank you very much. Thanks, Paige. That's a great question. Um, and I'll be curious what my co-panelists also have to say about this. But from where I stand, uh, being a non-racist would be someone who just says, well, I don't I would never say a word like that. I would never say something like that. I would never be harmful. I believe in compassion for everybody. But then they aren't necessarily recognizing that it isn't enough to just do that when Honestly, I think we must intervene in, in systems of inequality, just as we intervene by no longer consuming animal products. So um, for me, it, it's not so much about saying, oh, well, I would never do an egregious act of harm to someone, but it's recognizing that it is an egregious act of harm that I, as a white person, have had opportunities that people of the global majority might not have had. And what can I do to right that? Anybody else on that issue? Non-vegan, non-racism versus anti-racism. I mean, the, when I hear that, I think, well, one is passive and one is active, PJ. Yeah, and I think also that when you, I think in, when we start to talk about anti-racism, we're looking at confronting a major cultural problem that's much deeper in our ways of thinking than we recognize. It's not just, you know, overt racist statements or actions. It's also our values. It's things like discounting a black veg fest or not paying attention to voices as though they're not as powerful or important as others. And so I think that that's also part of it is the like conceptual shift to looking at um, how our entire culture and ways of thinking are embedded in a historical white supremacy. So it's, there's like more work to do, I think, than the more passive, I'm not racist because I don't say or do things that are overtly racist. There's, I think, deeper work um, for white folks to do in understanding the history of our values and understanding the kind of authority we assume um, of ourselves and of other white folks, um, the sort of implicit leadership that's assumed and so forth. 
I'd love to add just one thing to that, if I can. That was so, so uh, well said, PJ. I, I just want to add, too, that that is the point of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy. And I think it's a conversation that white people, we need to be having. And a lot of people have repeatedly said since this panel started, these are tough conversations. This is a provocative question, but this is exactly what it takes. And I, I, I want to also stress that it's conversations that white people need to be having with other white people because it's not it is not for people of the global majority to bear the brunt of the emotional labor of educating white people i think that this book can be a great conversation starter and as pj said there are so many ways that we are benefiting from this white supremacy culture even in and especially in animal activism and veganism that we must look at from a radical honesty perspective before we can dismantle it and change it. Right. And I'll add to that. I'm with, I'm all with Jane, the passive, uh, passive and aggressive. You vote with your actions, not your word. You can talk all day long, but if you're not being active and doing anything, it doesn't mean anything. It's not helping anyone. So yeah, I'll take, be active, take some action. You know what you have, learn your history, uh, do some research like they're asking us to do, you know, learning history and, and, you know, whitewashing things, do some research. We're, we're in a time where the information is at your fingertips. You can find out what's going on. What are you gonna do about it? It's so fascinating. When I look at the movement, a lot of times my first thought is, oh my gosh, how is it possible that women who are invite, involved in women's rights People who are involved in gay rights can't see the intersectionality. I had this ongoing debate with a member of the LGBT community who shall remain nameless who wanted to do BLTs for LGBT. And I was like, you don't have to kill pigs to promote the gay rights movement. Well, we have all options, blah, blah, blah. And it infuriated me. It was like, yeah, it's a catchy like acronym game, but that doesn't mean that it's worth killing an animal. And so I saw this complete shutdown, um, and that's just my opinion, at the Women's March, uh, the famous Women's March. I, I saw the same thing. I sat next to a woman who was talking passionately about women's rights, and then she was eating a chicken, but she didn't even, she ordered it and she didn't even eat it. And I, I said, that animal died you ordered the animal and you're not even eating it. I told the waiter, let's get that to go to give to some a homeless person outside uh, because that animal died. Complete and utter lack of consciousness, no consideration and hostility toward me bringing up the issue. So sometimes it's easier to point the finger than to look in the mirror. <laughs> you know? uh, <laughs> that might speak to like, the power of humility. I, I I find those moments very difficult. And I always look to you, Jane, as such a, you know, someone who acts in ways that I want to be able to act. I really look up to you in like 10 billion ways. But one thing that I find powerful in those moments is to recognize that there are so many things that that person probably knows that I don't know. Um, and maybe that can be our common ground. Well, and I look up to you in a million and one ways. Um, we got a caller, Tom, from Chicago. Your question or thought, Tom. Hi, Jane. Can you hear me? Am I in the air? Yes. Yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, I was taping to make. I think uh, I will say personally, vegans, in my opinion, are the most intelligent, compassionate, 
uh, progressive-minded people on the planet, and racism and homophobia has zero place on it. It's up to us to set the standards and lead by example to show people, the rest of the world, how, how things are capable of being done and so forth. So thank you for taking my call and having a panel today. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, out of Chicago. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the general. I think a lot of people are shocked. Like, Why, racism in the animal rights community? Does that <laughs> I was. Honestly, I was a little like, re- I, I think that there was this moment where we, we first look at it and realize, yeah, maybe it's not this idealized community uh, where everybody's doing everything right. We're humans. We have the base, base instincts just like everyone else. Uh, we feel jealousy, envy, schadenfreude, and all the other human emotions that most people have. We're not exempt just because we're vegan. Maybe part of it or the first step is to realize that as much as we'd like to think we're more evolved, you know, because we're not killing animals because we know we don't need to kill to survive, that we need to get humble and realize, yeah, we've got a lot of the same problems as the rest of society. I'm glad uh, you said that. Yeah. Because yeah. The vegans are in the minority. And I always say it's still a group that's in the minority. Why all of this infighting? It's a minority group. So as minorities, I think the goal is how do we get to the majority? What is all of this stuff that's going on? And let's let's get rid of it unless the vegans want to stay as a minority, you know, as an elite group. I don't know. But um, something definitely needs to be done about it. Well, exactly. We don't want to be an exclusive club. I say this all the time, usually in the context of people who say, I'm not going to go to this fast food restaurant and eat this new vegan product that can save (laughs) a billion animals because it's cooked on the same grill as an, and my personal belief is, and this is just my opinion, get over it whatever reduces the most suffering, whatever, whatever will reduce the suffering of an animal. If you asked a cow who was about to be tortured and slaughtered, uh, would you prefer that this cow be slaughtered or would somebody eat a veggie burger that is cooked on the same grill? I'd say go with the veggie burger uh, that's cooked on the same grill. That's what the cow would tell you. But yet I have to respect other people's opinions and I don't want to get into the infighting. Actually, at our nonprofit, we have a policy against covering any infighting, um, any inside battles, because I think it's a sign of weakness. And we say, if you have a problem, call the police or call a lawyer, leave us out of it. Um, That being said, I think, PJ, it is important to look at general issues where we can evolve. Yeah, and I think that um, I appreciate the perspective of sort of zooming out to, oh, that was cooked on the same grill. And then your perspective of saying, well, wait, like what impacts the animal? Um, and because and, I think that that's sort of what would be helpful for this movement going forward. I see a lot of opportunity to zoom out further and say, you know, what what harms are being caused by the food system? What harms are being caused by industrial animal farming? Because that's where we can find more allies, people who are concerned about um, migrant workers, about environmental racism, about the public health crisis. There's people who are addressing other facets of the same harmful system. And I think that, but when we look to animal suffering as the single goal, we're missing opportunities to look at those other harms and then ally ourselves with established movements who are doing a lot of work actually um, to, you know, change the same food system that is harming animals so much. Well, my theory about this, and I'd like to hear what everybody else thinks, is 
whereas industries target communities of color to put fast food restaurants. We've got a lot of evidence of that. Uh, the movie They're Trying to Kill Us talks about that. Uh, they are targeting communities of color and particularly the African-American community. And that is creating heart disease, cancer, diabetes, all sorts of problems. If we could make it politically incorrect for communities of color to eat fast food, uh, just like it became politically incorrect for people to smoke, it used to be very fashionable. And then all of a sudden there was an incredible advertising campaign where a cancer survivor is smoking a cigarette out of her neck. And it says smoking is very glamorous. It was one of the most brilliant ad campaigns of all time. And all of a sudden, not so cool to be smoking. If we made it like totally not cool for communities of color to eat fast food, it could collapse the entire animal, uh, the entire animal agriculture industry. And I've brought that up and um, the response has been great idea, but it's easy for you if you don't live in a food desert to tell people not to eat fast food. If that's all there is, uh, then it's, it's, it's not an easy choice. But the bigger issue is, personally, the power of the purse is just as powerful, if not more powerful than protest. Whereas the patriarchy and the oppressive system relies on animal agriculture, whereas the primary consumers or a good percentage of the consumers are communities of color, Wherefore, when you consume animal products, you are supporting your own oppression. And wherefore, if you wanted to overthrow the system, stop supporting one's own oppression. That is what I see very clearly. And yet, um, I know that there are problems with that formula. I would like everybody to address it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let me start. Sometimes you're speaking above people's heads and that's that's the basic <laughs> language of it. I'm sorry, Jane. Sometimes it's just way over there. You just it's just too much. You know, you're talking about maybe someone doesn't even know their uh, local council person like, you know, so it's it's that's why organizations like Black Vest Society are out in the community educating, educating, educating. That is what we can do. And it is up to that person. If there's no mandate, they're going to do whatever they want. And especially if that's been the behavior in the culture. And it's if it's cheap, you know, economics is important. Vegan food has to be cheap. Glenda Kush can't sell burgers for $4.99. You know, to, it, that's just the reality. So I'm speaking in terms of the, those that can, will, those that can't and won't, it's not going to happen right now. So educate, 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 give the information and uh, just keep educating the community, just All like right. we're doing now. Who's the next one who wants to address that? I'll jump in. I, that, that's absolutely true, Naja. Thank you so much for putting it that way. I agree with all of the above. And I guess I want to add that this is enough. To me, it's another example of how we can look at our own 
place in the world and our own privileges and make decisions from there. I had that conversation about the shared grill. I agree with you on it, Jane. I had that conversation with someone while I was sitting in a fancy, you know, uh, West Hollywood outside garden cafe drinking beautiful wine. And the person I was with was like, can you imagine that this exists? It's like just like eating meat. And it was like I just started cracking up because I was like, it's not for you. I mean, this is kind of undermining the fact that there are a lot of people who might have to go to fast food restaurants. And I'm not sure that like going in the direction of sort of shaming that in the way I see it is to me effective. I think recognizing that there is a value to the you know menu at McDonald's or Burger King or what have you, having a vegan burger, having a vegan meal for that person who wants to be vegan, but the only place that they can eat on the way from job one to job two before they go home to take care of their kids or whatever is that Burger King. So I personally agree that we need to recognize where we stand and what our privileges are. And I agree that supply is driven by demand. And that's why I'm vegan, because it's a difference I can make three times a day at least one more like seven times a day let's be real i eat a lot <laughs> uh well, pj yeah i mean thank you both for that i'm i i think i feel sort of caught between really uh understanding the power of individual diet change and then commu- the community effect of that i know like i personally went vegan it was went and that was very empowering for me that is part of how i became more of an activist and more outspoken and also just like more myself as a person uh so i feel like there's a real value there but then also i'm grappling with like the limits of individual diet change and how much onus to put on communities who are marginalized and victimized by the food system to then change their own circumstances i think there's that's possible but that's also just one piece of the puzzle and i think we're in a dire situation of a food system that's creating lack of like basic access to nutritious food and things where it's a bigger institutional change that's needed to be to be coupled with that individual diet change because i'm like i question whether the individual diet change can create enough change um without you know being also paired with um you know the powers that be shifting I agree with you 100%. I mean, we are barreling toward a climate apocalypse. The film Don't Look Up, as the plant-based treaty has brilliantly exposed, is really a metaphor for our meat consumption that is going to literally do us in. We have only a short period of time to get this right, to rectify it. And so it's all hands on deck. And... um, Let's face it. I mean, that's the existential crisis of our time. Uh, (laughs) If we don't have a planet, all of the other issues, if life is uninhabitable on our planet, all the other issues pale by comparison. Uh, So how can we be effective the fastest without compromising other ethical standards and being inclusive and uh, moving us forward, uh, personally, the, you know, talking to Tracy McWhorter, um, I really got a sense that the um, African-American community could be the leader in the global transition to a vegan world. Uh, final thoughts on that. We've got just one minute. Naja, give us your thought on that. 
That is true. I mean, we, we're definitely a powerful market and, and in dollars and, and numbers, uh, everyone has to be on board. And that's that's what I'll say about that. So I'll continue to educate. That's what I can do. Everybody can get the book. Can you hold it up one more time? Um, we can get this book, Anti-Racism and Animal Advocacy. I love it. I can't wait to read it. Um, I also listen to books. I hope it'll come on Audible. It is actually already available in audiobook on Our Hen House, which is my podcast. And you can listen to the whole thing by going to ourhenhouse.org and looking for it. I love it because that's how I'm reading right now. I'm taking walks and listening. I want to thank PJ Nyman, Naja Wright-Brown, Jasmine Singer. What an exciting conversation. We could have gone on for several hours. And uh, it, it's just a, a really great conversation. I love the work of Encompass, the Encompass movement. Uh, check that out. Get the book. Let's be part of the solution. Let's look in the mirror. And um, let's make this the beautiful, kind, compassionate world for all that it can be. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.